Great to see everybody. Let's get started. So first of all, let's take a couple of EDMs, Everyday Miracles. Remember, the qualification is uh, it doesn't have to be epic. It doesn't have to be over the top. It doesn't have to be gigantic because if you have one of those, then I might not want to tell mine. So, so we're not here to one-up each other. We're here to encourage each other. So any EDMs, I know, Shirley, you had one. So we'll start with you. On Sunday, I was sitting in the next to the last row because I had to leave early. And during the prayer time at communion, about the end of it, I got this nudge. God was telling me, Shirley, you need to have somebody pray for you. And the reason I sat back there is because uh, I was going to a retirement party in Walder that started at uh, 2. So I need to be in, needed to be in Kerrville by 11. So... <laughs> All during the uh, collection, the offering, I kept getting that nudge. And then something happened that has never happened to me before. And Don comes up and touches me on the shoulder and says, hi. And so I asked him if he could pray with me when I left because offering was almost over. So he did. He followed me out when I left and, and we prayed for a safe trip, etc. And had no problem going. Uh, we were coming home, and just after we left Bernie and just before we got to Comfort, there was this black car that passed us, and then he was like one car length in front of us, and he was weaving back and forth in the lane like he was trying to look around a truck because we had slowed down to about 20 miles an hour. And finally, all of a sudden, he zoomed over into the left lane, and then he got around the truck and he zoomed over into the right lane and two more times he did that going back and forth. And we decided we were getting off at Comfort and going in on 27. But I firmly believe that if Don had not prayed for me and for us to have a safe trip that that car might have been behind us and swerved in front of us instead of being in front of us. Because yes. it was an accident waiting to happen. Uh, I've had uh, the ladies and everything praying for my daughter. She uh, uh, put in an application. <laughs> she put in an application uh, to transfer from where she is in Aransas Pass to uh, Austin for a. Uh, her job would be a specialist for the uh, disability, a disability specialist, and she got that job. She starts Monday. Yeah. <laughs> Good news. All right, somebody else. Everyday Miracle, an EDM. Anybody? Coming all the way to the back, back row. Paul? Um, this is something that happened in um, April. I'm sorry I'm a crier. That's why I don't like to share stuff. Um, it was um, our family had a real miracle in April. I, the car situation kind of made me want to share this. Um, I have a nephew who's in the military. He's stationed in Germany right now. And he was on his way to work one day and he was involved in a head-on collision. Um, the other car that hit him, um, this tells you how bad it was. And when I saw his car, I just, it's an absolute miracle that he survived. Um, the other driver died. It, it was his fault when they tested him. He was about, um, six points over what he was supposed to be. Um, 
drinking wise. My nephew was able to crawl out of the windshield of his car and get out of his car. Um, had all these frantic Germans telling him to hold still because in Germany it's the law that you have to stop for accidents and provide assistance. Um, he ended up to being able just to kind of lay there. He walked away with just severe bruising to his chest and his shoulder because of the airbag and the seatbelt. And when he was giving his um, report to the MPs, the base commander came in because he had seen the pictures from the accident report and just told him, you are a walking miracle. And he, he really was. That he just spent one night in the hospital to make sure he didn't have any internal bleeding or anything like that. And, and this tells you how wonderful my nephew is. Um, he was so upset for the young man who died. He was just devastated that this young man had died and just felt so bad that his family was not going to have him there for Easter. And that's what upset him more than what happened to him. But I just wanted to share that. Thank you for sharing that. Thank you very much. The God who moved still moves, right? Yeah, absolutely. Is that working now? It's not working now. Okay. All right. Jerry and I spent two very long days this week at Stone Oak Methodist Hospital, which is my favorite hospital, if I have to stay anywhere. I was having multiple scans, and yesterday, it really hurt my heart to observe all the families together coming around someone having surgery. Most of them were Hispanic families, but I mean the whole family, babies, everybody there to support whoever it was. We have a very dysfunctional family. But when we got home and I was talking about it, Jerry says, our church is our family. So you all have a responsibility Unfortunately, you may have to meet us at Stone Oak Methodist, but there's a great place. But it was really, it was encouraging to me to see the families, the father being the surgery patient, the mother not speaking English, the sons and their wives. It just really touched my heart, and so I'm counting on all of you. So, uh, so we're better together, right? That's right. But it is complicated, right? It is complicated. It is very much, very much. All right, let's go ahead and pray. We'll get started, and, uh, and uh, we'll just always try to remember to do this at the beginning. It's great to hear what God's doing, how he's moving and protecting in various ways. So yeah, we're going to hit the ground running. Let's pray together. Father, in Jesus' name, what a privilege to come together in the middle of the week. Uh, they call it hump day, Wednesday. But we're here, Father, not to... Uh, we're not just trying to coast in and survive till the weekend. Father, our heart is to be thriving every day of the week. We should be getting up saying, T-G-I-M. Thank God it's Monday. And just having a, a mentality of carpe diem, seizing the day. Um, cape diem Christus causa, seize the day for the cause of Christ. So give us grace to breathe in and enjoy uh, each day that we have, because it is a gift. I'm just reminded of that tonight through the testimonies. And Father, we're here before you as, as students, as pupils, as learners, and I'm asking 
that you would open our eyes that we may see and be aware, that you would open our our ears that we may truly hear, not just in the physical, but in the spiritual. And Father, open our hearts that we may know by experience, that we may nosco the truth that makes us free. And our declaration tonight is whom the Son sets free is free indeed. So here we are as we posture ourselves before you to learn. So I'm asking as a favor that you would anoint our time together, that you would touch what we do, what we say, but also touch what we hear. And I pray for each person here tonight that this won't just be a a Bible study that we just check off the box and go home, but that we would say, I got something out of this that's going to help me today. It's going to help me in the place that I am. So Lord, open our eyes, ears, our hearts, that we may receive from you what you would have us hear. And that's my prayer tonight. Father, what do you want us to hear? What do you want us to learn? And what do you want us to apply? Because we want to be doers of the word and not just hearers only, as the book of James encourages us. So we honor you, and I submit my own heart, mind, everything I have to you. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. All right, so you may see the slide up there. It says identified, and that's the series that we're going to be starting this Sunday. Those of you that have been riding with us for a while on Wednesday nights, the identity piece, you're no stranger to this. But if you are like me, I need to hear it over and over. I I can't just get something the first time, second time. I've learned that repetition sets up the potential for revelation. And it's not just about information. It truly is about revelation. So when I hear things over and over and over, that's how I learn. Uh, I've never been one to just sit down and try to memorize the scripture, but I read it all the time. And so it gets in me through, rev- through repetition. Now, I may say the Bible says in the New Testament somewhere, but I'll quote it. <laughs> but I may, but I don't, because I don't just sit and try to learn chapter verse, but I've memorized a lot of it just by spending time with it. So it's the same. I need to hear these things over and over. Our identity in Christ, who we are and whose we are, is, I believe, one of the most important things that we can teach. Because a follower of Jesus who does not know who they are in Christ, and they don't know whose they are, that they are Christ's, they've been bought with a price, or the temple of the Holy Spirit, the dwelling place of God. Those who don't, they are getting ripped off and robbed on a constant basis by the enemy. Because there is an enemy who is a predator, and the Bible calls him a murderer from the beginning, a liar, and the father of it. He's a deceiver by nature. The scripture even says it's his in his nature. And so, we don't walk in paranoia. I don't look around corners waiting for the next thing to happen. I just know, and I wake up in the morning very keenly aware that there's an enemy out there, and it's not a person. It's nobody on this earth. And so, so those assignments that are against us, when we know who we are and the lies come, we can say, I'm sorry. Here's what I do. Let's go to the Lord. Is that true? Is that true, Lord? Father, is that true? Abba, Father, is that true? And I know he'll tell me if it is. I'll know that. I'll discern that in a nanosecond. And so we're going to teach the church 
who they are in Christ, who's there. We're going to spend six weeks doing this, and that's why we're just calling it a summer message series, and we're just going to hit the ground running, starting off with discovering. If you'll remember, part of our four Ds, the first D is discovering who you are in Christ. So this is all intentional and strategic in nature. So we'll start. If you have anybody that you know that is, you know, various series address various things, but I want to encourage you to invite somebody to this, and because what happens during the summers, you know, we get busy and scattered and all that, and but I say that we had 417 last week, so I mean it's not like everybody's gone. They may all be gone one week and then everybody's back the next. It's crazy in the summer. You never know. So that's a good thing. But who in your orbit? Who in your relational orbit? Who, who in your circle? needs to know who they are in Christ. They may be a follower of Jesus and may have walked with the Lord for many years, but they really don't know who they are. And I'm telling you, that's the thing the devil doesn't want any of us to understand. Because as long as you don't know who you are, he has leverage against you. So what you don't know will hurt you. It'll set you up for failure. So anyway, we're going to hit the ground running with Identified. That's going to be our six-week series. So let's jump in. I want to share something from one of my favorite authors, John Eldridge. Uh, he's the leads Ransomed Heart Ministries, wrote the book Wild at Heart. Um, great, great man of God. And uh, you see Russ has got that up? Great. Okay. I can't see it. It's like totally. So I've got it right here. So here's what it says. You can see it on the screen behind us. You must understand an important distinction. There is Christianity and then there is church culture. They are not the same. Would anybody agree with that? Pastor Ron, would you agree with that? Been there, done that, got a closet full of t-shirts, do you not? So we understand that, that there is a big difference because when I was various times, specifically in Abilene, we would have people come to me and they'd be so excited about the church. And that made me nervous because the church is made up of us and we are going to let you down. So if you get high on us and we're the best thing since sliced bread, it's just a matter of time before you do what I call the back road drift. That's people who start off here and then a few months later you see them in the middle and then they just get further and further. That's not a knock on you, Tisha and Jim. They get further and further back and Annette, Annette's on the way out. So she's out of here. So, so what happens, we call it the back row gif, where we see people go because they put their hope in the church. Our hope is not in the bride. Our hope is in the groom. Our hope is in Jesus, right? He's the anchor. And so, but a most, I say a lot, most, most Christians in America have their hope in their source. I'm going to go to this church because it's feeding me right now. We're very consumeristic in this. We're a consumer culture. So we go to where something is, I'm getting something out of it, you know, instead of I'm going as a family member to contribute and help and support and make it the best it can be. Instead, it's like, well, they don't really have this for me and they don't have this for me and they don't do this program and this isn't going to work. So we just shop churches like we do when we go to the store, we go to the mall, we go to Lock and Terra or the Rim and we're just like, oh, wait, Old Navy has this, I'm going to go over there. And so what happens is, is we have churches that are not families anymore. They're just rotating, it's a rotating door at the front. Does that make sense? So, yes, Paul. That is true. That is sadly true. And that Christ is just as offensive today 
as he was then. Is he not? Is he not? People are offended. He's a stumbling block, the scripture says. And so there are churches, and I was in one, not for long, but I was in one where it was not about Jesus. And I, Annette and I woke up and just thought, oh my gosh, what are we doing? This is not going to work. And, I, and that's another story, but you're right. You're right. So listen to this. There's, there's Christianity, then there's the church culture. They are not the same. Often they are far from the same. The personality conveyed through much of Christian culture is not the personality of Jesus, but of the people in charge of that particular franchise. That is a frighteningly true and accurate statement. I don't like it, but it's true. And um, I have said to some that sometimes it feels like in our current cultural milieu that you've got, it's like if you weren't the popular kid in school, then you can't grow a big church. It, there's, a, there's a celebrity-ism that's very popular now, and it's very scary uh, for what churches have become. Um, and we're going to resist because we're just going to keep preaching Jesus, right? And holding up a high view of scripture and truth. So he says this to end it. Tragically, the world looks at funny hats or big hair, gold thrones and purple curtains, stained glass or fog machines, and assumes this is what Jesus must be like. And so we want to be aware and be cognizant. And how do, how do we do that? We do that through being discipled well unto Jesus Christ, not discipling people unto ourselves. Uh, we don't need a bunch of mini-me Maxes running around or a bunch of mini-me Jimmies running around. In fact, me and Max would say, please don't. Uh, we don't need another of any of these. And you, those that you are discipling and pouring your life into, the idea isn't to reproduce yourself, it's to reproduce Christ. So we're discipling people not to ourselves, but to Jesus, right? So, Listen to this. Chapter 6, Lesson 1. If you do have your purple book and you want to follow along, you can. I'll call out where we are, but I'm going to, going to move very quickly through this. Chapter 6, Lesson 1, The Call. And the call is to make disciples. I've been beating this drum, and I'm going to continue beating this drum. So get used to the boing, boing, boing. We're going to keep going with this. Jesus calls us to go and make disciples of all nations. This charge propelled the early followers of Christ into a strategic mission that turned the world upside down. We read that, and we spent 18 months on Wednesday nights through the book of Acts. And we saw what happened when the disciples launched out, commissioned, the apostolic mandate, Matthew 28, commission, the great commission, we saw what happened when they did it. They did turn the world upside down. Not just by preaching the gospel, but by training the new believers as well. To be a Christian is to be a disciple. Okay, this is not an option. To be a Christian is to be a disciple, a lifelong learner and follower of Jesus. You want to have a simple definition of what a disciple is? A lifelong learner and follower, a student, a follower, a pupil of Jesus. So Luke chapter 5, verses 27, 28, I'm going to share some scriptures here. Verse 27, after this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi. He is Jesus, okay? The ESV doesn't capitalize uh, pronouns of God. So I'm just saying, he, that's, that's Jesus, he went out and saw a tax. Who was Levi? Anybody remember his other name? What? Matthew, that's right. 
That's, that was his name. So Matthew, who became the disciple, his name was Levi. He was sitting at the tax booth. He was a tax collector. Remember, they were not exactly well-respected in that culture. And not really well-respected in ours either. If you work for the IRS, I'm sorry, but it's just we're all a little mad at you right now. So um, just by the nature of, of what you do. And he said to him, follow me, and leaving everything. Look what he did. Look what Matthew did. Leaving everything. What did he leave? And what do you think everything means in the original language? It means everything. He literally abandoned everything. He rose and followed him. He rose and followed Jesus. Here's another scripture. Luke 9, 23 and 24. And he said to all, this is Jesus again speaking, if anyone would come after me, and then he lays it out, let him deny himself. Wow, we just lost 90% of America right there. Let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Three things right there. Denial, deny yourself, take up your cross every day, and follow him. Verse 24, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. And then 1 Corinthians 11, 1. This is Paul speaking, and he's saying, this is what we do as disciples. He says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Paul says, I'm trying to walk this out. I'm a teacher. I'm an apostle. I'm walking this out, so do what I do. Remember, he's talking to baby Christians here, because in Corinthians, remember Corinth, Corinth was a train wreck. That should not be offensive to us. That actually should be a little bit comforting. They were dysfunctional in the first century, just like we're dysfunctional today. And so we're in good company. And so what we have to do is say, okay, let's look at the church at Corinth. And if they were so messed up, how did Paul address them? And a lot of really erroneous doctrine has been pulled out of the book of First and Second Corinthians. Because Paul was addressing some very specific situations. We have to be really careful. This is where we need to know our Bible. But it's difficult sometimes just to have a cursory reading of the Scripture and actually find out that some things that we talk about, like women teaching, length of hair, a lot of things were very specific to that church, that situation. Women in leadership, well, we can't have women in leadership because in Corinth, they said, no, but wait a minute. There were women doing great damage. He was addressing the troublemakers at the time. It didn't matter what their gender was, but this is who was blowing it. And he's saying, they cannot be teachers. They cannot teach men. They can't lead men. We have drawn out and extrapolated doctrines out of this stuff and turned it into denominations. Churches have split over erroneous doctrine for decades. That's why we've got to have intellectual honesty as we approach the scriptures and be willing to remember our, our saying, context is king. Context. We need to find out what's really going on here before we run off with a half-baked scripture and damage somebody's life with it through our judgment. Does that make sense? Hey, Amen. I'm preaching now. <laughs> Thanks, Jerry. Yeah, you just have to tell me once. So, moving right along. Yeah, go ahead. And, and that, that sentence divided people. 
I mean, when he made that statement, it was divisive. And it's divisive today. It's especially divisive today. And, uh, and we'll be addressing some things as we continue to go. But we're going to constantly hold up Scripture as our guide, not our opinions or the cultural moray at the time. Whatever the culture is saying, probably our call will be opposite of that, more than likely. Not always, but a lot of times. And we don't, we're not against our culture, but by the very nature of who we are as followers of Jesus, we will cross-cut culture. And we have to be okay with that. I mean, really, to follow Jesus and live this thing out, we have to grow a spine. Because it is, it is, it's a high standard that we're holding up. But the standard isn't just behaviors. The standard is a person. And the standard is Jesus. And so we have to be willing to deny ourselves, take up our cross every day, and follow him wherever he leads us. In uh, lesson one, the call, number one, what did Jesus call his followers to do? Let's just see what the scriptures say about this. Matthew 28. This is the Great Commission, or we call it the apostolic mandate. Apostolic means sending. That's what the scripture means. That's what that word apostle means, sent one. And so when we talk about, in fact, in, in the, fivefold, the fivefold ministry that is uh, Ephesians chapter 4, 11 and 12, it says, And he gave some to be apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. The word pastor there is shepherd or pastor. The other word, apostle, means missionary. I mean, literally, that's what it means. Sent one. Those that are sent out. Paul was an apostle because he went out on missionary trips and planted churches everywhere he went. The apostles are the apostles because they were sent ones originally, and they were the original that were Jesus. They were sent out, and they turned the world upside down. So today, we get really bent out of shape because we've made some aberrations on Scripture, and we've turned apostles into bishops and overseers over movements, and we call them apostles. And that gets, that gets real wanky. And gets real off sometimes. We've got to be careful. So do words matter? Are semantics important? Absolutely. We live in a world of words and social media and everything. Words are important and critical. And because of some social media and everybody's a critic and everybody now is a writer and an author, that what happens, we've diminished the value of words by sheer volume. Now, how does that work? I don't know. When I was growing up, if I wanted a record, remember those? 33 and a third. I mean, it's like vinyl. And I don't know about you, but to go get one with us, a 45. That's a little one. But that's, that's a single with a B-side. But if I went down to, to uh, Billy's Band-Aid in Lubbock, I had to scrape together Coke bottles, 10 cents a pop, and, uh, you know, turn those in and get them. And then when I would get a record, it was gold. And I would wear that thing out. Anybody know what I'm talking about? And, you know, just, oh, Lord forbid I didn't scratch it. You know what I'm saying? We just treated them like gold. And guess what? The value of 10 or 11 songs was high. But with the proliferation of the Internet and then streaming music now, and you've got Spotify, you've got Amazon Unlimited, I mean, you've got, I mean, just got Apple iTunes, you've got all these different things where now you can just, for, you, can, you can say, Alexa, Shuffle songs from Bethel Music, which that's usually what I say. And guess what? She does. 
But what has happened is that now the value of music has diminished where a lot of musicians and artists are not doing well. They can't make it anymore. There's only a few elite that are actually making it. I lived in Nashville. You know who I worked with at Dave Ramsey for two years? Bunch of ex-musicians. You know who waited on me? You know who the Starbucks baristas are in Nashville? Probably the most talented people you'll ever meet on the planet, but they can't make a living doing music. Why? Because we've devalued it through sheer volume. Because you can just get it at the drop of a hat. Where it used to be, oh my gosh, 11 songs. This is amazing. And so we do the same thing. And what has happened with social media and everybody's a critic. Everybody has a phone, a laptop, an iPad. And now everybody's got something to say. Everybody, guess what's happened to the value of words? It's diminishing. So to me, words are actually more important than they've ever been. Whereas it's being devalued through volume, now we need to value them and say the right things. Amen? And be careful about what we say and be intentional about what we say. I went off on a rant there, but I think it's really important, and I hope it helps you understand the importance of this and the value of it. Matthew 29, uh, 28, 19, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Remember, we've broken that down in the original language. It literally means go therefore and disciple the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. I loved watching Renee get baptized on Sunday because she was mouthing that with Jason as he was saying, in the name of the Father, and she was saying it with him. It was a beautiful moment of just, they were both saying the same thing, and it was, it was an incredible moment watching that happen. In the name of the Son, the Father and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Number two, if you're following along in your book, number two, lesson one, what specifically did Jesus say that we must do after baptizing a new believer? Here it is, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. So that is our role. That is what we do in discipleship. We take the very teachings of Jesus. Matthew, we've got them in this form. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Those are the Gospels. And we take those and then we now teach others what Jesus said. Even as we are continuing to learn and grow. A lot of people, though, think, well, I don't know enough to disciple somebody else. Let me tell you something. If you've been born again for a day, and you're discipling somebody who just got born again that day, you're a day ahead of them. So walk with them. Grow with them. The thing about discipleship that's a misnomer, the thing, this is it. This is the book. And yours is big. So that's a good one. But the thing is, is that you know enough already to take that book and something that's a help. The purple book is just a, a way to give you a track to run on. And you can literally walk with somebody else. Because here's the deal. We never stop learning. I'm, I'm taking Bill right now, Coach Bill. Uh, he's usually here on Wednesday night. He and I are going through the Purple Book together. And every time we go through it, we're opening it up. I've done it. I've lost count how many times I've done that book. But every time I get something fresh out of it. And our, our conversations are extreme. He's an intense dude. You know what I'm saying? He's a football coach, and I think he still thinks he's a football player, and that's how he attacks the scripture. And we just, man, we're just going at it. It's so fun and so invigorating. Man. We're like, let's put on some pads and go hit somebody, because he's just so fired up. But all that's happening is that we're both igniting and engaging, and as iron sharpens up one, you know, as iron sharpens iron, one friend sharpens another, and it's like we're sharpening each other, and it's exciting. 
And so don't feel like you've got to know everything to walk with somebody on the journey. And, and discipleship is not, I'm superior and you're inferior, therefore let me teach you what I know. It's like, hey, let's go to the throne together. Let's meet with Jesus together and let's learn together because we're better together. So it's not, you're my disciple. Oh man, when I hear people say that stuff, I'm like, oh, no, no, wrong, wrong. There's a mentality there that's dangerous, it's pride, and so we can't do that. So anyway, we're to teach them to observe all that Jesus commanded, not what I've commanded, what Jesus has commanded, and he says, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Moving on. Number three is the word of God spread in first century Jerusalem. What was the result? Remember, we went through Acts together, Acts 6-7, and the word of God continued to increase. The word of God there means the message. That's what it literally means. They didn't have a Bible per se. They had the law. They had pieces, fractions of the Torah or the Pentateuch. They had all of that, but they didn't have the Bible like you have the Bible in your form that you hold in your hand or your tablet or whatever. And so the message or the word of God, when you see that, literally means the message of Christ. It's the gospel. It's the good news. When you see Romans 10, 17, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Bible. The Word of God. That's not accurate. Actually, it literally means faith comes by hearing and hearing by the message of Christ. That's what that means. So, so we've got to be careful that we don't just default to a form that we thought when that isn't exactly what it's saying. Is that making sense? Don't we want to be accurate? We, I want to know the truth that makes us free. Truth makes us free. So I want to know that. I want to know him. And then I also want to know the truth about scripture and having intellectual honesty, all of that. So the word of God continued to increase. The message of Christ continued to grow, the gospel. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests, uh-oh, this is where things started getting stirred up, Right? Once the priests are going, hey, we, we found out who the Messiah was, man, that was like throwing a major wrench in the spokes of the religious system at the time. So a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith, and that's when, when trouble started to brew. It was, a, it was a big problem there, but it was a good thing, but it was a rough thing for them. Verse Number four, what did Paul command Timothy to do with the things he had been taught? And here it is in 2 Timothy. He says this, Remember Paul talking to Timothy, Paul, older, more experienced. He's teaching his spiritual son, so to speak, Timothy. And he says this, And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. He's saying, spread this. Reproduce yourself. And it's beautiful. I know Russ is taking somebody through the Purple Book. We have others in our, in our church. Annette's taking people through the Purple Book. Others are starting to do this, and that's what that is. It's taking something, taking the Scripture, taking the Word, taking a person, and saying, now I'm going to teach you because I've been taught. It's passing it forward. Uh, remember the movie Pay It Forward? This is blessing it forward. You're blessing life forward and passing along what you've learned. And trust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Paul compares the life of a disciple to the life of a soldier, an athlete, 
and a farmer. Think about that. A soldier, an athlete, and a farmer. He then promises that if Timothy will reflect on these things, the Lord will give him insight. Second Timothy 2, he says this, Share in suffering, and I highlighted it for you, as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. Share in suffering. Verse 4, no soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. Man, when I read that scripture as a brand new follower of Jesus, that, that rang true to me. I was like, wait a minute, don't get tangled up. Don't get tangled up in the affairs of men. Don't get tangled up. Wait, you mean don't get caught up in the things of this world? And then I read Colossians chapter 3, verse 2, that says, Set your mind on things above and not on things on the earth. Whoa. All of a sudden, the things that we can't see become more important than the things that are right in front of us. There's a bigger thing going on. A bigger thing going on. So he says, don't get tangled in up all that, since his aim is to please the one who enlists him. And then he talks about an athlete. This, this rang true with me because I grew up as an athlete. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. Learned that the hard way in high school and track when I stepped out of my lane and got disqualified. Verse 6, it is the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. It's called first fruits. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding and everything. So he's using all three of these different examples that were in their world to say, this is what it's like. Number seven, if you're following along in lesson one, how did Jesus say we can know we are truly a disciple? Again, a very familiar verse if you've been around me 30 minutes. John 8, 31 and 32. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, if you abide in my word. What does the word abide mean? Live, to dwell, to make your home in. It's all of that. So if you will abide, if you'll stay. Remember, that's what Joshua did when Moses would leave the tent of meeting. The Bible says Joshua would hang back. He would hang back in the tent of meeting. If you abide, dwell, stay in my word, my message, my teaching. That's what he's referring to. It's not just the Bible. He's referring to his teaching, his word. Now, fortunately, we have it, right? Leather bound, bond leather, genuine leather, new buck leather. I mean, we've got it all, right? We have a beautiful thing, but you want to abide in his teaching and his word. I used to say we should read the red and pray for the power. And I love Paul, and I love the letters, their instructions and lessons and learning, but I want to focus on the Gospels, because the Gospels are the words of red, which means I, that's what Jesus said, right? Those were his words, and this is what this is saying. If you abide in my words, my teaching, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth. That word know means to know by experience, not just know with your head, but to know with your heart, to know in your knower. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Jesus compares those who put his words into practice to a man who dug down deep. Russ, next slide, bro. Thank you. Jesus compares those who put his words into practice to a man who dug down deep, then laid a foundation on the rock. This is the most critical part of any house. This is why as a disciple, you must lay strong spiritual foundations. And what I have found as I've gotten older in the Lord and grown and pastored in several places is that by and large, most Christians don't have strong foundations. 
And so the first storm that comes along, the first wind that comes along, they just get blown over. They get blown away. I don't know if you've been watching the news at all, but the weather news right now has been pretty crazy. There have been tor so many tornadoes already this year all over. I mean, tornadoes up in Canada, tornadoes in China. I didn't even know they had tornadoes in China. And so, I mean, they're happening all over the world right now. And now with the proliferation of cell phones, everybody's a videographer, right? And so we've got all these amazing videos of tornadoes like we've never seen before because everybody's catch, capturing them in real time as they're coming toward them, as debris flying around them. It's incredible. It's kind of blowing my mind. But the thing is, is that where there's no solid foundation, things fly away when the wind blows and the storm comes. And listen, I'm not, I'm not a, you know me, I'm Mr. Positivity here, but here's the deal. It's not if a storm comes, it's when a storm comes. It doesn't mean we live paranoid and afraid because we have Jesus, right? And if we are grounded, then we might be bent, but we'll never be broken. Someone had a, a picture of me, and they, they wrote me this beautiful description. Actually, it was a dream. I was in a dream, but I was a tree. Isn't that cool? It's a dream. You can be anything, right? So I was a tree in the, green, in the dream, and she said that you're, you were in the middle, and there were a lot of trees all around you, but you were the center, and you had been damaged. And the beauty of it is that as you were trying to fall over because you were broken and damaged, all the other trees moved in on you and you leaned on all the other trees and they held you up. Isn't that powerful? It's because we need each other. We need each other. One day it may be you that's broken and we need to come around you and hold you up. So when your life is built on the foundation, saw the foundation, you may be bent, but you don't have to be broken. You don't have to be broken. Bent, yes, but that the healing comes, and you don't have to stay in that place. Let the other trees come around you. So that's the power of having a strong foundation. Here's another commentary. This is from Dr. Rice Brooks. These Bible studies are intended to do just that, to help lay the foundation for the Christian life. If you are discipling someone else, you have the opportunity to help them lay the foundation for a never-ending relationship with Jesus Christ. Listen, when we help someone lay foundations, we're actually shifting the trajectory of their life. Think in, that, in those terms. What we do matters. Every word of life, every word of encouragement, every word of hope, every hug, every high five, every prayer that you pray with a friend, all of those matter. It may not be epic in the moment, but you put all those together over a period of time and they begin to add up and there's cumulative grace, there's cumulative strength from those things. And it culminates in hope and help and life. And you do that over a lifetime, you've changed hundreds, maybe thousands of lives and you didn't even know it. That's why I keep saying we've got to be life leakers. Jerry. I watch HGTV too. <laughs> I am not kidding. I love, I love seeing renovations. I love seeing restorations. And seeing something that looked like it was a goner. And there's some stuff they do on there that's mind-blowing. There it is. There it is. There it is. Sometimes you have to take something down to the foundation and start over, right? 
right? That happens. And so, so that's the deal. We, we build these long, these strong foundations, but we also have the privilege not only for ourselves. And here's the beauty. You know why I love to teach? Trade secret here. Because I learn so much. I have to. I have to study. I have to prepare. I don't have to. I get to study. I get to prepare. I love doing this. Because every time I te get teach you or preach or whatever, I learn more because I'm immersed in it. I have to be. I have to be. I've got guys like Paul and Jerry listening to me and Pastor Ron. I mean, I've got people, the colonel, Dr. Colonel. I've got people listening to me that I've got to be on point, and that is so good for me. It's so good for me because it drives me, and it's driving my own, selfishly, it's driving my own foundations deeper. So I get to do this. Isn't that true, Ron? It's the truth. It's, it's such a privilege to do what we do, isn't it? Number two, in lesson two, number two, how often should someone who wants to be a disciple take up their cross? <laughs> we know the answer to that one, right? And he said to all, if anyone could come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. You know what's beautiful about the cross of Christ? It's already been born. <laughs> He's already carried it. His yoke is easy and his burden is what? Hmm. So if it's not light, is he messed up? Is he fibbing? Did he not tell us the truth? If it's heavy, it probably means it's not the yoke we're supposed to be carrying. We've picked up a yoke that's not ours. A yoke, by the very nature of it, was actually custom fit to that particular oxen. I mean, it fit. It was designed for that one. It wasn't a one-size-fits-all. They would actually carve it and develop it as the young oxen grew. They would actually expand it, carve it, so that it always fit properly. Because a, a yoke that didn't fit properly could hurt the animal, could damage the animal, and it wouldn't maximize the power out of that animal to do what they needed to do with it. So a yoke was custom fit. Guess what? The yoke that you carry is custom fit for you. No chafing, no damage. It's actually designed for you. His yoke is easy. It fits. And his burden is what? So if there's a burden on you that's not light, it's not yours. Am I the only human in this room who's picked up stuff I'm not supposed to be picking up? It would be like somebody coming along in a pickup truck that was loaded down with sacks of feed, and I got in the back of the truck, and I said, I got this. Now, there's a pickup to carry it, but no, I'm going to get in there and carry it myself while I'm riding in the back of the pickup. How absurd is that? But we do it all the time because we pick up things we're not designed to pick up. We try to pick up other people's stuff. That's called codependency. And we pick up their stuff and we feel responsible for their stuff. And if they don't, if they're having a bad day, we have a bad day because we're codependent. And we weren't designed to carry it. Does that make sense? Is that getting too close to home? That's just real. This is real. And this is what I love about the Bible and what I love about faith is it works in real life. This works today for us. 
He said, if anyone come after me, deny himself, take him his cross and follow me. Keep it moving. Taking up your cross is the ultimate act of surrender, a conscious choice to deny yourself and live for Christ. It means a willingness to follow and obey Christ to whatever end. Now listen, that doesn't mean you have to do what my friend Paul Blizzard has done. Paul and Pat Blizzard, I went to, to college with Paul. He was always on fire for Jesus. He was radical. He's the guy who would put gospel tracts on the Bible professor's cars because he didn't think they were saved. I mean, he's just radical. I'd go, Paul, don't do that. So I'd kind of not be seen with him sometimes. He was intense. But you have to understand, he was raised Jehovah Witness. And he was a missionary in the Jehovah Witness Church and went up and was at the Watchtower up in New York. And he was all that in a bag of chips in that movement. But when he found Jesus and he found salvation, he took that same passionate zeal and the Lord said, I got you now. And I mean that same zeal, that same energy, that same fire was now turned on for the gospel. And he was so red hot and radical, he scared most people off. I hung out with him because I could put up with him because he was intense. But what Paul and Pat have done, he later became a pastor. I became a pastor. We all go our ways after school. We get out in, into, our, into what God's called us to do, and we're doing it. And the next thing I find out, he calls me from Vietnam. We're not talking 60s here. He calls me from Vietnam about six years ago. and He says, Jimmy, I, I, I'm going to ask you a favor. He said, would you be on my advisory board? I'm like, yeah, so where are you? He goes, well, we're in Vietnam. I'm like, what are you doing in Vietnam? He said, we're, we're, we're running an orphanage over here. God called us to come here and raise up the next generation of world changers because the only way Vietnam's going to change is from the ground up. So we're going to pour our lives into children and make disciples of them. And in 15, 20, 30 years, they're going to be leading the country. And that's exactly what's happened in the Philippines in Manila through Victory Church where they went in and realized if they would change the campus, they would change the world. And they have a long-term strategy where they've been discipling kids and students and college students. And now those kids are in government. I told the story one time of being in Manila back in 2005-ish, their 20, 20th anniversary at the time, and we were in an arena where the Thrilla from Manila was fought, that arena. And we were in that arena, and it was absolutely jam-packed. I thought the thing was going to come down. I mean, it's rickety old arena. And they were singing and worshiping. We were looking around at this sea of young people. And they, they did this call. They said, everyone who feels called to government, I want you to stand to your feet. We're going to pray for you. Hundreds, if not thousands, of young people stood to their feet. I thought, what would happen in America if I said, anyone who feels called to change the world through government and politics, would you stand to your feet? We're going to pray for you. It would be crickets, would it not? Maybe not. It shouldn't be. So what we saw and what we witnessed was generationally they're going to shape their country. Well, that's what Paul and Pat are doing in Vietnam. And some would say, oh, you're bearing your cross. You're, it's hot over there. It's primitive. It's dark. It's, it's dangerous. He is having the time of his life. He makes the mission field look like a vacation, but it is not. 
but that's just Paul. That's his spirit. That's his passion. He looks just like Santa Claus. He has a massively long, beautiful gray beard, and everybody sees him as he plays Santa Claus every year. It's part of his ministry, and it's massive. He'll have thousands of kids come through to see him so that he can pray over each one. They don't know he's praying over them. They don't know. But here he is, a Southern Baptist pastor, over in Vietnam, ministering to kids, fighting for these children because they're going to change the nation through the next generation. You know what that's called? That's called missions, and it's called discipleship. They're doing it. The Bible says, go therefore and disciple the nations. That's what that literally says. And they're discipling a nation starting with the children. Isn't that cool? Mm -hmm. So that's what this is. It's taking up your cross and denying yourself. Yeah, they've denied themselves. He'll send out things to, to all of us and say, hey, can you send some chocolate chip cookies, please? I mean, he's just, he asked for Hershey's bars. I mean, the stuff we just eat all the time, take for granted, just can you send me a, a bottled Coke, please? I mean, just the stuff that we just like, eh, no big deal. And But for them... They're laying their whole lives down to, to change a nation, to change the country. Number three, if you're following along, Jesus once compared discipleship to a war. Why? Well, Luke 14, 31 tells us. It's on the screen. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. This is how serious Jesus is about following him. He compares it to an athletic contest, to war, to farming. Jesus used all kinds of things that were all around him to say, this is what it's like. This is what the kingdom is like. And again, Dr. Brooks says, it is very critical to understand what is being said here, as well as what is not being said. And this is important. God has called us into his kingdom through his grace. Ephesians 2 Verse 8 says, for by grace have you been saved. And through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. So we're saved by grace. Guess how we're maintained? Through works? No, by grace. This, you dance with the one that brought you, is what we used to say when I played horrible golf. You, you don't change your game at hole 16. You, did, you keep doing what you did. And it's the same way with walking with Jesus. I came to Christ by grace through faith. Guess how I'm held and kept today? By grace through faith. Guess what happens when I encounter opposition, pain, betrayal, letdown, criticism? By grace, through faith. It's the same. It never changes. The MO never changes. So he says this, God has called us into his kingdom through his grace. Being born again means that we have a new life, though salvation is a free gift. On the flip side of the coin, it costs us everything. But really, what does it cost you? It costs you your old life. Is that really a cost? I look at that and go, I don't, my, what, how was that working for me? Not good. So I don't want that old life. It's dead. It's gone. Buried with Christ in baptism, raised to walk in newness of life. Amen? So why, why do we want to go back? 
it's heartbreaking, and I know we've all seen this, maybe we've done it, where you see somebody who is really hitting on all eight cylinders, they're walking with Jesus, things are going good, and then something happens, and they go right back to where they used to be, and you just see collapse. You see devastation. You know what the Bible calls that? This is really gross, and I apologize, but it's scripture. It says, as a, re as a, as a dog returns to its vomit... So a fool to his folly. Yeah, it's gross. Because when we see that happen in real life, we're like, oh my gosh, how can that dog do that? Get away. I mean, I don't know about you. I'm like trying to chase my dog away. But that dog's determined to get back to that. But have you ever chased a brother or sister who's running back to that? And you're like, how can you? It destroyed you the first time. Why would you want to go back? Though salvation is free gift, it costs us everything. And I'd say, Dr. Brooks, I get what you're saying, but I don't want to go back. I don't want that life. Make no mistake, we cannot buy God's love and forgiveness. But Jesus doesn't beat around the bush. Is it, are we on there? We good? Jesus doesn't beat around the bush. It will cost us everything to follow him. That's just denying ourselves, the old self. If we want to be Jesus' disciples, we can have no other gods before him. That's called lordship, and we don't talk about that a lot in the church today because in America we're trying to make it a little softer, so everybody, we want everybody to come in. And the problem is, and I'm that nice guy, I want everybody in. I do, I do. However, the flip side of the coin is there's a standard that Christ brought, and we can't ignore that standard. We can't, and it will cross-cut culture, and it will sometimes cross-cut people you love. And Jesus even spoke in terms of denying your own father, your own mother, your own brother, your own, I mean, there were some heavy things. The gospel, the gospel is good news to those who are smelling the aroma of Christ, but to those who are perishing, the scripture says it's death. It's the aroma of death. And it will cross-cut. Those who are disciples will show it. It is critical that we cultivate the fruit of a godly life. This is in lesson four, if you're looking at your book, Christian Character. It is critical that we cultivate the fruit of a godly life as we follow Christ in discipleship. Now listen to this. Number one, what has God provided for us by his divine power? It's in 2 Peter 1.3. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. In other words, it's his power. It's not our own grit, faith, and determination that helps us overcome our sin. You go to war with your sin, you will lose every single time. You cannot overcome an your own sin without the power of God. There's no way in our own grit, <sighs> cowboy up, pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. It, you can't. You will not win. And I liken it to this. I call it getting into a cage with a gorilla. If you get into a cage with a gorilla, you will lose every time and you will be a bloody mess every time. And a lot of us will go back to sin thinking, I'm going to win this time. 
Father, I'm not going to commit this sin this time. I'm not going to fail this time. I'm going to do it right this time. And we get right back in the gorilla cage. Somehow thinking we can overcome the gorilla. You will never overpower that gorilla. So what's the answer? Get out of the cage. Don't go in the cage. Paul told Timothy, flee youthful lust. Run. Run like Forrest Gump. That's my interpretation of the scripture there. But it's, it's just run, Forrest. Run. Get out of there. Because you'll never win that fight. Does that make sense? His own divine power has granted us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. Quickly, I'm going to move quickly. How Number two, how are we able to participate in the divine nature? 2 Peter 1.4, by which he has granted to us, this is God himself, has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them, those promises, you may become partakers of the divine nature. Having escaped from the corruption, there it is, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. How? Because of his promises. He promises that we will make it. He promises that he'll finish what he starts in Philippians 1.6. He promises that he's got us. He promises, promises us that if, if God is for us, who can be against us? His promises are true, and they allow us, his promises allow us to participate in what's called the divine nature. We need to actually get to walk this thing out, but stay away from the gorilla cage. I mean, when I'm a zoo, I want to go see the wild animals, don't you? But I'm telling you, in life, we've got to stay away from the cage, okay? Just a few more. Lesson four, Christian character, the most important mark of a disciple of Jesus Christ is not charisma. In other words, what draws them to you? Spiritual gifts. That's charisma. Spiritual gifts. And we get real enamored and awe by people who walk in great power. And it's amazing. Celebrate. Yes. Go for it. I love that. But we get enamored by it. But godly character, we should never minimize the importance of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Can I get an Amen. And when we do, we're fighting, we're kicking against the goads of God. That's, that's not what we do. And here's this, yet, not but, but negates everything that goes before. However, or yet, it is the fruit of the Spirit that identifies the true follower of Jesus. Love, joy, peace, patience, the things we minimize. <laughs> These are actually the things that matter. It's funny in church, you'll start preaching on the fruit of the Spirit and people start nodding off. But you start talking about prophesying, speaking in tongues, baptism of the Holy Spirit, gifts of healing, the anointing, the power of God, fighting devils, spiritual warfare, and people perk up. And yet what really matters and what really moves the ball down the field is not the gifts. Thank God for the gifts. But they're add-ons and additions. They're not essentials. What's essential is character. Me, I want the gifts and the fruit. Come on, I want everything God has, nothing more, nothing less. And that's what you should want too. Nothing more, nothing less. And when you say that, you're telling God, whatever, whenever, wherever. I want, it, I want all that you want for me. If you say that and mean it, get ready. Fasten your seatbelt. So look what it says. It's the fruit of the Spirit that identifies the follower of Jesus. When Jesus was teaching his disciples how to identify false prophets, he said, by their fruit, he didn't say by their gift, 
because they were prophesying and wowing people. It wasn't their gift. He said, it is by the fruit, by their fruit, you will recognize them. Many are gifted, yet the real test of a person's character, habits, are, is a person's character, habits, and lifestyle. Though every disciple is given gifts for the benefit of the entire body of Christ, it is the fruit of a godly life that we must cultivate if we are to bear the marks of a true follower of Jesus. Charisma is important. And we're not going to ever diminish that. Never. It is important. Character is essential. Does that make sense? Okay, a couple more. Jesus' original disciples became great leaders. Their lives and message impacted the world, but they didn't start out as leaders. They were fishermen, <laughs> tax collectors. I mean, they, they were not the cream of the crop. They started as disciples. Anyone who wants to lead first has to learn how to follow. And it's interesting, being a pastor, I get people come up to me that I don't know, and they'll introduce themselves to me, and then they'll read me their spiritual resume. And then they'll say, I'm a teacher. Is there a platform for me here? I'm like, well, I don't know you at all. So the last thing I'm going to do is turn you loose on the flock. Because I have a responsibility to protect the flock. And I'm telling you, this happens more than you can imagine. And people, there are people who are looking for a platform for their gift. And I'm like, don't show me your gift before you show me how you can serve. Because I want to know if you can serve. I want to know if you have a heart when it's time to stack chairs and you're, you're over there doing it or you're waiting for, you're clearing out and doing something else. I watch for those things. I watch to see what people are doing. Because the ones that serve well, lead well. And the ones that want to lead but not serve, they've mixed up what the Bible means about leadership. It's servant leadership. Not just leadership like the world says. And I'm a leadership junkie. I love that stuff. But it better be service before leadership. Amen? Does that make sense? I can really rant on that, but I'm not going to because time's out. They started as disciples. And last, I have two slides, three slides left. What did Jesus tell his first disciples to do? Matthew 4. And he said to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. He didn't say go fish for men. He said, follow me and I will make you that. And sometimes we get a little ahead of Jesus process. And we want to go fish for men before we've actually followed him and before he's actually made us, converted us into that. It's got to be him in us and through us, not us saying, I'm going to go do this. Now bless it, Lord. I'm gonna, I feel called to do this and we run out ahead of him and we're asking him to bless us as we go. I've done that, by the way. Maybe you have too. Number three, how did the disciples respond to Jesus' command and promise? Immediately they left their nets and followed him. Doesn't sound like there was much debating here. Well, let me pray about it, Jesus. The temple's coming up this weekend. Let me go to temple and talk to the priests. And no, this says they followed. They left their nets, which was their whole livelihood. They left everything. After a season of intense personal discipleship, Jesus sent his followers out on their own to practice what they had watched him do. And we're coming to a point now that we're about to take our step as Bridge Church, Fredericksburg, where we're going to get the privilege now. We've been under the cover of Oak Hills. It's been real safe here. Now you talk about safe for me, all I had to do was host a service. Jeez, how easy is that? 
and have to prepare sermons and preach and, I mean, take 10, 20, 30 hours a week to prepare for two messages. It was just like, talk about a cush job. But I was bored out of my mind because I know what I'm called to do and be. So I was riding the pine over there. And when all this began to turn, here's what I began to realize. Not only is there more weight on me, there's more weight on us. And that's a good thing. Because we have a community here that we've been basically aloof from because of being connected and tethered to San Antonio. But listen, this is us here now. And now we get to turn what we've learned and what we've gathered and what we've gained and now begin to love our community as one in the community. Amen? This is, we're coming into our time, so get ready. Fasten your seatbelts, because we've got something to do. Discipleship's foundational to Christianity, but at its core, it's a very simple concept. This is not rocket science. This is not complicated, thank goodness. In fact, it's so simple that 2,000 years ago, Jesus explained it to a group of fishermen in one sentence. Come, follow me, and I will send you out to fish for people. To be a disciple is to follow Jesus, reach the lost, and engage in this process with other believers. We're better together, and we are called to reach those who do not know him. And so riding the pine and enjoying our nice seats and, and sitting on our blessed assurance is not going to cut it because we are equipped and we're ready to reach our community. Amen? <laughs> Some of you are nervous. Okay, that's good. Matthew 28, we end with this. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore. Here's what he's doing. All authority has been given to me, and he's saying, therefore, go. He's like, it's been given to me. I'm now giving it to you. This is amazing. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. There's the promise. We're sent out, but we're not out alone. Amen? Let's all stand together. I want to encourage you, if you did not get a chance to be here this weekend, I would encourage you to listen to the podcast because it was very important uh, what we were doing and what we we're talking about. I did a fact, frequently asked questions about the transition, and I gave out really some of the most critical information and questions that people are asking. We address those. Sunday evening at, what time did we say, Annette? Help me. Six. Six. I'd rather do it at 5.30 we get everybody back here. So we're going to shift that a little bit. This, so 5.30, and we'll get the word out on Sunday as well. We're going to have a leadership summit meeting. What are leaders? Servants. So it's all of us together. Everybody's invited. And I'm going to unpack some of that and give you a little more detail about how the nuts and bolts of this are going to work. So, And just so you know, I mean, we've only recently gotten the rest ourselves. So, I mean, it's not like we've been holding out. It's literally we're doing this in real time. So it's it's... Super scary, super exciting at the same time, and it's time. It's time for us to grow up. Amen? Grow up and go out. That's what we're going to do. Amen? Let's pray. Father, in Jesus' name, thank you for the privilege of what we get to do here, that we get to hear your word, even if it's just being read off a page. We're getting to hear the scripture, and you speak to us in various ways. I pray for my friends and family here that even this week as we step out of this place, there'll be opportunities for us to cast cables across large stretches 
whereby we'll begin to bridge the gap between us and our community, us and the people we work with, where we live, where we play. Lord, give us the grace to cast cables this week and touch people's lives. Thank you for this gospel. Thank you for the privilege of being a disciple. In Jesus' name, everyone said, amen and amen. Amen.